We are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. This is the second part of a two-part episode. To hear part one, listen to last week's episode, and then come back for this one. You know, W.H. Auden, the poet, said that it's really no use writing someone's biography because the most important moments of someone's life take place quietly within them, often in, in experiences they don't mention to anybody when they're standing in the line at the grocery store or, you know, they're, I don't know, rolling up the car window um, where they suddenly realize, I don't believe in God or I don't want to be married anymore or I'm in love or whatever. And I feel like what poetry, what the poems I love do is they somehow know that and that they, they, they there's a kind of internal... Uh, correspondence that occurs when you, when I read a poem, um, that there's a kind of correspondence that can happen in my interior life that happens in the poem, the poet, that the, and whatever happened to the poet can somehow happen to me. And that, that deep interiority is, I think, how we, where we change, you know, where we are changed. And, uh, I've been thinking so much as we all have about how how we respond to the to the world we're living in in this country, this empire that is crumbling, that's breaking down and thrashing, thrashing and thrashing in its death throes and making so much havoc um, in the world while it does that. Um, the terrible injustices, deep, deep injustices that are part of the structure of this empire and how we benefited from them as white, so-called, what is James Baldwin? What is James Baldwin? He says, people who think they're white. (laughs) I love that one. Um, My daughter's Asian, so she's always saying, mom, you're not white. She just, we put our hands together and she's like, you're kind of, you know, the whole notion of color is so ridiculous. But it's not because it's, it's, it's so, figures in people's lives, of course. But anyway, how to, how do, a lot of people I know are writing now. And I, I just, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what to say or do, but I feel as if I've just come to the end of a corridor and I can't find the door, uh, what, I, what, what I'm trying to say. I guess what I'm trying to say is, uh, you know, internal change happens inexplicably uh, and that and what has to happen for so many of us is internal change in order to really activate the, the, the necessary external changes and it has to happen fast and I don't know how to affect that except within myself and I, I mean or try do you know what I'm saying just since we're talking about silence at a moment where people are outside, you know, or inside, or all of us are outside saying, I can't breathe, and black and brown lives matter, and 
there's a paradox here because you know I, you take me right back to you sitting in your chair you know and the is the end of the corridor just another place where you're invited into stillness and no. in the con in the contemplative tradition stillness is as important as silence and yet today's the day after pentecost the world's on fire in many ways quite literally the world is on fire and when things are burning one thing you don't do generally is just sit down. You know, <laughs> go grab some water, do something, grab a bucket. And so this paradox of kind of the the call into stillness and the call to to action. Any thoughts on how we collectively can navigate that at this moment? Truly, it's all I've been wondering about too. Everybody I know is wondering about that. I keep thinking of who is the guy? I can't remember his name. You know, he wrote um, another French guy, Penzes. Pascal. Pascal. Pascal said, I mean, the world could, would be completely changed if everyone learned to sit alone and quietly in a room. It's true. I think a lot can be said for that. I also think a lot can be said for standing in solidarity, too. I don't know. I'm pretty speechless about what can happen now. In your On Being interview, you've talked about silence as the center of everything. And Thomas Merton writes that about preserving silence as the center of all other loves. And I think, right, the sitting, there's something here, right? The sitting has to happen so that we can take the stand. Yeah. The sitting and, and knowing the insides so that we can know how the insides are completely interconnected to yeah. everyone else. Yeah. I, um, I, I think that's very wise, Cassidy, to bring that up because, you know, and to know within oneself, the brutal police person in oneself, to really own that and to try to own one's own violence and, um, you know, mm -hmm. righteousness and defensiveness and fear and anger. I mean, all those things. To really see that. I mean, the us and them just has to stop, you know? I've been lucky enough to be able to teach eco-poetry over the last four years. And I don't know what eco-poetry is really, but, some, but, but we study the living world. And one of the things we read, I give excerpts, is the I and Thou uh, book, you know? Because it, unless we begin to relate I thou to everything, the tree, the river, the forest, the mountain, of course, each other, uh, even when it's almost impossible. Like, for example, the person who, who lives in the White House right now, to be I thou um, is, seems very, very, very difficult. I'm not really, I can't do it. Um, it's a failure. But I can't right now. It's, just, I'm a fa it's a failure. But, but to try to do that. I mean, Thich Han says that. You know, he says, we are all that. And to recognize it. I love the beautiful encounters uh, between people and the police and the state police. Have you seen some of those videos? So beautiful. The woman who just hugged the, the guy. Did you see that? I can't remember what city it was in. There's like all the soldiers are there and she just steps up and 
puts her arms around him and he holds her and they, it's like a minute of just holding each other. So beautiful. And those are the stories we need to be telling. Yeah. There was another great photograph I just saw and it's from today of a whole bunch of protesters jeering at um, National Guard and one young man reaching out his hand to shake the hand to hold the hand of one of them. And the National Guard person putting his hand right out, you know? Or I saw, what mayor was it? Was it Minneapolis? No, uh, see, I'm getting all the cities mixed up. It wasn't a mayor, it was a policeman. It was a policeman who said, we're here to protect your right to protest. We are not here to hurt you. And he took off his helmet and they all said, walk with us, walk with us. Did you see it, Cassidy? I did, yeah, I saw that. Do you remember where it was? I don't. Yeah, he took off his face shield. Yeah, he took it all off. It was like, Mm -hmm. so I was just amazed, chilled, moved, changed by that radical original act, right? Just. Yep. I did want him to wear a mask, just given the pandemic, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I was I saw the one that moved me, I think it was Florida, it was a bunch of police officers all they made a statement and then they took a knee. And oh, they yeah. and they did the like take a knee movement and they all and there was like fifty of them. They all put their batons and everything down and they just and there was the, and I think they stayed down for a good period of time with heads bowed. And I thought, that's a picture. I have to find it. And that's what we have to, it's like you say, we have to pass that news on. You know, we have to keep saying, passing the news on that there are people who are refusing to be an us and them. You know, I'm not them. You're not them. We're all us, you know. I keep going back to what you said before, that each of us, the most powerful moments inside of us. If we could even just have a moment of that mm-hmm. inside of us, call ourselves, you know, acknowledge mm-hmm. that there's that violent one inside me. Yeah. And yet at the same time, yeah. that's not all I am. It's not an us them. Yeah. And you hold people who do wrong accountable. Of course. Of course. No doubt. I mean, no discussion about that at all. Yeah. Um, But. John Lennon said it so beautifully. He said, we are all Christ and we are all Hitler. Yeah. And, you know, and it's hard to acknowledge that Hitler within us. And yet, if we want, if we want inner healing, and certainly if we want interpersonal healing, we've got, we've got to contend with the Hitler inside of us. And we've got to learn to see the Christ in the others, especially the ones that we are in the habit of othering. Yeah, I agree with you. I appreciate, I so appreciate your, um, your citations today, Seneca and uh, I and Thou. It's just Boober, funny. Martin Buber. Yeah, Martin Buber. I mean, because I, I teach both of those texts. So <laughs> just, I love it. William Pascal, Blake. You know? Blake. It's unbelievable. You know what's really funny, Kevin? My, the, 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 the paperback of Seneca has got this spooky statue of his face. Oh, yeah. Know? I've seen that one. And my daughter's like, ugh. Yeah. He's horrible. 
And I said, he's not really horrible. That's just a kind of awful thing because his eyes are like blank, you know. So she took a Band-Aid and she put it over his eyes. It's interesting you were talking to about Seneca, about how things can change in a moment. I mean, he lived at the time of Nero. Yeah, and he knew. And so he, he knew he knew Nero could like one day wake up and decide, you know what, let's kill Seneca today. And that would be a I'm thing. Torture first. Yeah. yeah. Then, then we'll kill him, maybe. Yeah. Maybe, maybe. It's terrible. Yeah. Well, well, wasn't it um, Cicero who was speaking out and the next day his head was on the podium where he was speaking? Yeah. Like you said, it could just turn in a moment and they knew it. You know, just that that's extraordinary. Who dares to speak now? You know? Right. Right. Yeah. The, the thought of that podium becomes the, yeah, no way. This conversation on encountering silence will continue after a 30-second break of silence. Take a moment and breathe with us. Okay, so I'm going to bring Merton in again because that's what I do. But Merton talks about how the rush and pressure of modern life are perhaps its most common form of violence. Yeah. And you have a poem titled Hurry, oh, yeah. which is incredibly striking. And at the end, you turn the tables. You're, you're telling your daughter to hurry, hurry, hurry. And at the end, you say, you walk ahead of me. You be the mother. And then it be kind of comes this playful banter um, with her telling you to hurry. Hurry, darling, hurry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Taking the keys from my hands, yeah. True story. Being busy is an affliction. I feel like I am disabled by it. And you know this, Cassidy, uh, you know it from experience with me. And I feel like one of the gifts of of this time, this difficult time for so many people has been being forced to be still. And everything just being stopped. I mean, this Zoom slipped in. I kept teaching, of course, and everybody keeps. But this culture churns away and churns away. You know who I've been reading that really means a great deal to me? Do you know about Bifo Berardi, the second coming? Or he wrote a book called The Uprising Poetry and Finance. Oh, wow. And then he wrote a book called The Second Coming, which is kind of about communism. It's, but the, the, his latest book, which I've just sort of disseminated among my friends, is called Breathing. And it's very much about, it begins with I can't breathe. And even though this was published just before this, the first I can't breathe. And he talks about how this the you know capitalism this this kind of neoliberalism has forced everyone into this this march of busyness so that it's a it's it's what we all do uh well at least in the northeast the belly of the beast in new york city but this 
just kind of consuming your time. Merton actually has a gorgeous thing. I'm sure you know it, Cassidy, about what is he? He calls it the share, the sharecropping of time that you're, the only thing we really have is our own time. When of course that's just now, but, um, but that we, we become sharecroppers of time. That's it. We become sharecroppers of time. And, you know, it's economics, it's, it's capitalism, it's consumerism. It's keep, I mean, what does everybody want us to do? They want us to go buy stuff after 9-11, remember, go buy stuff. I mean, there's, there's something really, and, and, and uh, Bifo Berardi says something that of course has been said before, but he says, we, we have been guilty. You know, modernity promised us um, refuge. It promised us refuge from the barbarians and from hunger, as long as we agreed to salaried work and living off the misery of others. And so uh, we have agreed to this. We agreed to it years ago, and that's how we live. I use Amazon every day. I keep saying, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. I'm like an addict. You know, one more day, one more book, just one more book, one more book, one more thing. But how to, how to put a stick in the spoke of that, that machine when we know that people in sweatshops around the world and everywhere are being, we're, we're living off their misery. So... I think of Merton a lot because he, he was struggling with this so much. I also think Merton, I'm jealous of Merton. I mean, he had the best life, you know. He got to have, live in that little hermitage. He got to know that the monks were nearby. His friends got to come take him out to dinner. And he was always too busy. He struggled all the time with being too busy and seeing too many people. That's one of the reasons he becomes easier to bear later in his life because he's so done in by it too. I love him because he writes about the problems he, he has, you know, with being present. You know, he was, you probably know this, he was such close friends with um, John Howard Griffin. Yeah. Do you remember John Howard Griffin? Yeah. Black like me. Yeah. yeah. He came to our house once in Rochester. He was speaking at the local college and the president of the college was kind of lived at our house. You know, he was our live-in priest kind of. And he brought over John Howard Griffin. And he talked about how his friendship with Merton made it possible for him to be on the streets as an activist. Mm. He said, because Merton was living in solitude, I could be on the street. So it's sort of back to our earlier conversation about somebody quiet in a room. Mm. Well, I was just, it brought, you brought me back to Henry, Henry Nguyen and that he kind of talks about that longing for someone waiting for you. The other person, you know, talking about Merton and talking about Henry Nguyen, the other, the other person that comes to mind, of course, is Howard Thurman, who I think, again, was, you know, the relationship between um, Merton and Griffin was echoed in the relationship between Howard Thurman and Martin Luther King Jr., I don't know who Howard Thurman is. Yeah, you. Um, yeah, it's a treat. You have you, you have a treat ahead of you. A Baptist minister. He studied at Morehouse. Uh, eventually became, I don't know. Very. He had a successful career. He was at at Marsh College up in Boston. He was in San Francisco for a while. Of course, at Howard University in Washington D.C. But his writing, of course, is what makes him. And he was a mystic. He was a contemplative. 
and um, you know, to come out of the Black Baptist tradition, and you and his sermons have been recorded, so you can hear them. They're all online now, and he thunders like the best Baptist preacher, and then he brings his voice down almost to a whisper, and he invites you into the divine silence. And he wrote a book called Jesus and the Disinherited that Martin Luther King Jr. kept with him at all times. Mm-hmm. The, book, the book, I guess it stayed in his briefcase or whatever. And the story goes that when Thurman was relatively young, he spent a year in India and he spent some time with Gandhi. And of course, Gandhi spoke with him about nonviolence. And so this kind of informed who Thurman was, and then Thurman, of course, serving as a mentor to Martin Luther King Jr. So you have this kind of genealogy of, well, of, of more than that. You know, I've just I've just almost finished reading War and Peace again, and Tolstoy wrote Letter to a Hindu. That's right. And mm-hmm. Gandhi read that, and the two of them got talking, um, and he was deeply informed by by Tolstoy. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so it's all. It's it's the web of that all those gleaming threads of people in discourse with each other. Yep. We can add the Merton Martin Luther King Jr. connection too. That's right. They corresponded and yeah. Um, well, he was going to come out to visit at Gethsemane at the Hermitage, and wasn't able to make it because he won the Nobel Peace Prize and went out to receive that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. How, Howard Thurman is is an amazing read. And it, I just always um, talk. I always feel like that's a person who holds silence and activism really powerfully together. Mm-hmm. I think, Marie, if it's possible, would you be willing and or able to read a poem to us? Sure. Really, just whatever you're you're feeling would would make sense. I think for us. Well, I'm torn. I have a poem that's called The Singularity. Um, remember the singularity is the extremely dense particle from which everything burst out of in the Big Bang. I was reading a lot of physics, trying to understand and reading uh, Carlo Ravelli and Stephen Hawking and my daughter's a really she's great she has a scientific mind Stephen Hawking's died and um so Maria Popova do you know Maria Popova Mm -hmm. she has the brain pickings she does she puts on this amazing universe in verse event in New York in Brooklyn so uh I I wrote this for Maria's event and it seems sort of to encompass a lot of what we've been talking about the singularity. Do you sometimes want to wake up to the singularity we once were? So compact, nobody needed a bed or food or money. Nobody hiding in the school bathroom or home alone, pulling open the drawer where the pills are kept. For every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. Remember, there was no nature, no them, no tests to determine if the elephant grieves her calf or if the coral reef feels pain. Trashed oceans don't speak English or Farsi or French. Would that we could wake up 
to what we were when we were ocean and before that to when sky was earth and animal was energy and rock was liquid and stars were space and space was not at all, nothing. Before we came to believe humans were so important, before this awful loneliness. Can molecules recall it, what once was, before anything happened? No I, no we, no one, no was, no verb, no noun, only a tiny, tiny dot brimming with is, 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 all, everything, home. Bifo Berardi says is that all of us walk around holding an umbrella and in the underside of the umbrella, we have drawn the conventions and opinions of our life. And that we believe that is the firmament, but that occasionally an, an artist or somebody puts a slit in the umbrella and we see the actual firmament, um, if, even glimpsing it, you know? I just read that yesterday that he wrote that. I think that's a beautiful way of looking at perspective and how we get so, it helps to see through our own opinions, our own conventions. Yep. Um, and you'd be surprised who, who's reading him right now. A lot of people. It, it's, I know. It, it's interesting that you pointed him out because I'm thinking back to your, that comment with the umbrella, I'm thinking back to Moses seeing just the bush. Yeah. The bush, yeah, seeing as, as opposed to the underside of the umbrella, right, exactly. Mm -hmm. Or an idea of a bush, so I don't have to look at the bush, right? Right, or, or the um, eat the food, don't eat the menu, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a Buddhist saying that like what happens is you'll go to a restaurant and you read the menu and you'll say, Oh my god, that sounds so good, and then you order the food and it doesn't taste as good because one was the idea and one was the oh. actual thing. And oh. you get lost in your idea. So don't eat the food. Don't eat the menu. Don't don't eat what you think about. Actually see is. Actually taste the food. Actually be, yeah. in, be present to what actually is, not your thoughts about it. Yeah. Well, it's been a great pleasure, Cassidy Hall. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Kevin Johnson, thank you so much. Carl McCollman. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to be with you all. I think this has been a rich conversation and I really appreciate your willingness to invite us into your world of ideas. Thank you very, yeah, very much. Yeah, very much. We are Encountering Silence. I'm Cassidy Hall. To learn more about me, please visit CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. To find out more about my work, visit my website, KevinMichaelJohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. My website is CarlMcCollman.com. Please visit the podcast website at EncounteringSilence.com. There you can learn more about each of our episodes 
and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. By making a purchase through our website, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Also, to learn more about how you can be a part of our circle of supporters, visit patreon.com slash encountering silence. This way you can share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all too noisy world.